he repeats this a few times in the beginning is because the Gentile people were anti-Semitic. The Gentile people said, you guys, we're better than you. you. You're not important. And Paul is saying all of that's fine. There's equality. There's no favoritism in Jesus. But God chose the Jewish people first. God chose, the gospel was given first to the Jewish people. The promise of God was first given to the Israelites. And then because they rejected the gospel, his grace has been extended to everybody else. So we still have to admit and accept that God's promise was first to the Jewish people. So he goes on to say, there's equality in both. And so he says that everybody in mankind, all of mankind are sinners. We have come to a point where we take created things, creation, and made that our creator. So we have replaced creation, we have replaced our creator God with something that's created. Whether that means an idol, like a wooden idol or a stone idol, or whether that means uh, money, whether that means pride, whether that means homosexuality, there are all these different sins that Paul is going down in the list. And he's going about slander, he's saying gossip, all of these things are part of the list that Paul talks about. And he says, all of this is wrong. And he says, you have replaced God with all of these other things that you put forward and put before God. So we all stand guilty in God's presence. So then uh, Israelites say, okay, but we are better because we have the law, right? The Jewish people are like, we have the law. We have the Old Testament. We have the Ten Commandments. We are this. We are that. We are the we are third generation, so and so. We are the full-blooded. And all of these boastful things. And Paul says, yeah, that's all true. But that means because you have been passed down the line, because you already have all these credentials, you have a responsibility of being faithful and holy and true even more. Right? Does that make sense? Because you know better, your responsibility is higher and greater. But yet, the Israelites have fallen over and over again. Two weeks ago, we talked about the cycle of sin or the cycle of salvation. We see that from Genesis to mid, midway in the Old Testament, like throughout the minor prophets we, and in the New Testament. And we see that today. It was three different things that happens in a cycle. First thing that happens is humanity is fallen. That all of mankind is broken. Right? And the second thing is repentance. When we realize that we are broken, when we realize, God, I can't do anything without you, what happens? The natural response is to seek God and to repent and say, God, I need you, right? Paschadavam uh, is the second th part of the cycle. The first thing is brokenness, or the first thing is that humankind is sinful and broken. Second thing is a recognition of this sin and repentance. And the third thing is God's response to our repentance, and he forgives us and restores our relationship. So, Adyam, Manishajadi Allam, Pabigalana. Second thing is Manisha Paschadabikimbam, Devam Namale, Shemikim, and he will make us, he will restore our relationship with God. Amen? 
Aren't you happy that God does that even today? That we don't have to go through the cycle of the Old Testament or anything like that to go back to God's presence because we all sin. How many of you sinned this week? How many of you sinned last week? Right? Because by sin, we're not talking about a set of slandering or pornography or sexual addiction or stealing or murder or anything to that extreme because most of us don't do that. I mean, I hope not, but because we're so good at keeping a list of laws. And the Old Testament people, the Pharisees, were very good at that. And we see that even in Romans that they went to an extent of holiness where they said, we don't want to eat meat at all because it's not kosher. I mean, they were doing what the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did by saying we're going to be, become vegetarians. Because they said, the food that's been offered to idols, we don't want to partake in that. I don't want God's, God's uh, wrath. I don't want to experience that. So they went to the extreme of trying to please God by what they did. And yet God is saying, what you're doing is not enough. Why? In the Old Testament, there were 613 commandments that were given. So first you have the Ten Commandments. And further on, uh, Moses gives all these other different commandments and rules. And you, uh, people are trying to keep all these rules. And when you come to Jesus, you go to the Sermon of the Mount, and he makes the commandments even harder. Because in the Old Testament, Paul said, if you, if you murder, you're a sinner. If you commit adultery, you're a sinner. You come to the New Testament, Jesus says, you don't even have to murder. You just think about murdering. You just call your brother um, something bad. That becomes a sin. You, you don't have to commit adultery. You look at a woman or a man with lust, you're already a sinner. So Jesus made the law, which was already hard, even harder. So that doesn't make sense to us because Jesus came to deliver us from the law. So why did he make it more harder? And the reason is because he was trying to prove a point by saying, in the Old Testament, I gave you 10 commandments. It was, you broke all of it. I gave you 600 commandments. You broke all of it. Because the people were saying, give us more commandments so we can be holier. God, if you just give us more commandments, more laws, we know what to break and what not to break. What to do and what not to do. So people were, it was easier, like we know, and we give our children rules to follow. So God, they were asking God, just give us a list of rules. And they did. But the more commandments God gave, the easier it was for them to break. And it was easier for them to become guilty. They became more guiltier in God's presence. And when it came to Jesus, Jesus said... I'm going to make this harder. And the reason is because how much ever we try as mankind to, to please God and to try and become holy, we're not going to succeed. Amen? So whatever we are going to do outside of Jesus, we're always going to be guilty because we're going to be lacking in some way. Does that make sense? So the, old, the law and the Old Testament and the Sermon of the Mount, all of these are good things that God gave. Except what happens is that when we look at the law outside of Jesus, we're guilty because it's a reflection of where our heart is. When we see the law and the commandments and the Ten Commandments and everything in the Bible. But when you see that outside of Jesus, we are guilty. But when you see that through Jesus and through the sanctification that comes through Jesus, we're all equal in the presence of God. Amen? 
Amen? Because whatever we do, my friends, whatever, how much ever we try outside, and I'm repeating myself again, because outside of Jesus, we can do nothing. Which is why we have to do most of this. We have to live a life of righteousness. We have to live a life of holiness. All of that is true. But all of that has to come through the presence of the Holy Spirit. All of that has to come through the gift of God. Because when you say, God, this is hard for me. I don't know how to do it. I need your help. And you seek the Holy Spirit. God gives you the ability to please God. God gives you the ability to, to live a life of holiness. But you do that outside of Jesus... It becomes a challenge. Amen. So that's what Paul is saying in uh, uh, chapter 1 through 3. Again, for most of uh, you guys who came uh, just a few minutes ago, I'm, go I'm doing a really quick recap and then getting into chapters 9 through 11. So chapters 1 through 3 is talking and addressing about the guilt of Israel, the, gift, the guilt of the Gentiles, and the guilt of all of humanity. And Paul says, everybody, regardless of whether you're a Jew, regardless of whether you're a Gentile, whatever it is, we are all sinners in the eyes of God, and we need a Savior. Last week, I gave an example of uh, somebody who is in quicksand. Um, if you guys remember, um, it's the sand. I don't know what you say that in Malayalam. Kuramana. And so when you are in quicksand, you cannot come out by yourself. If somebody else in quick, is in quicksand with you, both of you are going to try and come out, and you can't come. And the more you struggle, the more you try, the deeper you're going to go down in quicksand. The, one of the few only ways that you can get out of it is if somebody from outside is going to reach you, reach to you, and help you out. And that's what Jesus did. Because all of human, humankind, all of mankind is in quicksand. We're all sinners. We need somebody from outside. And hence, Jesus came from outside to help mankind up out, out of sin. Amen? Praise God for that. And so Paul goes into uh, chapters 5, 6, which talks about the first mankind, which is Adam. And the sin that came, that we inherited through Adam. Okay, so I have a two-year-old, Josiah, which all of you know. And he's the cutest little baby in the whole world. But as he turned two, I'm seeing more of his personality, more of his tantrums, which he probably inherited from either Pastor Justin or I. Uh, but you're able to see this, the sin and the personality and things that comes through him. And I'm like, how, are you, how do you even know this? Right? And that's because we, as humankind, we inherit Adamic sin, Adamic lifestyle. It's already in our genes, except none of us are stuck in it. Okay? The only way to get out of it is to go through the second Adam, who is Jesus. So whatever is true, when you become a Christian, we join with Christ. When we accept Jesus... When we become baptized, so we, when we die to Christ and when we are risen with Christ, you become joined with Christ. So what is true of Jesus is true of us. So if Jesus is an heir, which means if Jesus is a child of God, then we are God's children too. If Jesus has the inheritance, we have the inheritance too. Because when God looks at us, he looks at us through the lens of Jesus because we have been sanctified in Jesus, which means we have been washed of our sins and we are in, in the presence of God through the work of Jesus. So we don't have to go through death and we don't have to do all that hard work. All we have to do is put our trust 
in Jesus. Amen? And so uh, uh, quickly, let's turn to uh, chapter 8 because we're going to go cover chapter 9. And usually, uh, I talked about this before, when you study the word of God, you can't just look at one verse and try and understand the meaning of the verse. You have to read the verses before it and after it. You have to study the chapter before it and after it. You have to study the whole gospel or the whole book and try and understand what the writer is saying in the whole book. Then you have to understand why the, peop- uh, why the book is included in the New Testament. So you go from small to big. Okay, and that's when you understand the true meaning of what the verse means. Okay, so uh, in chapter 8, which is such an amazing chapter, if you can, which all of us are adults and we have the capability of studying this, memorize chapter 8. It is such an edifying chapter for your personal spiritual life. So chapter 8 talks about the suffering of mankind. So uh, everything in creation Everything that's been created is groaning for God's redemption, is groaning for, uh, to be uh, delivered, to, to be one with God again. And you see the suffering of mankind, and right after that, you see the glory of God. So you see the suffering that we go through, and yet God, uh, Paul says, that is not yet, that's not, we're not there forever. We are not stuck here forever. And he talks about the utter glory that we're going to see tomorrow or in the future when Jesus comes. Amen? And so there is hope is what I'm saying. A lot of us today, we don't know what hope is, right? Okay, so we talk about hope a lot. But somebody uh, told me once that our generation or my parents' generation, we really don't understand what hope is. But my grandparents' generation, who was in India, or my great-grandparents' generation, they know what hope is. Because they lived under the British rule in India, and they were deprived of a lot of freedom, but they had the hope that one day they will have their own country. Israelites had that hope before they became a nation of themselves. They had the hope that one day they will become a nation. The African Americans here in this country, even though there was no possibility, same thing with India, with Israel, with all of these places, there is no possibility in in their immediate circumstances. Even though there is no possibility, they still view it from a distance with faith. And that is what hope is. Okay, so I don't know what else we can consider in a worldly matter what hope is except for our salvation or except for the glorious return of Jesus. That is what our hope is. Amen. Because we look around us, it's been 2017 years and Jesus has not returned. We want Jesus to return. We see the world, it's getting worse and worse. We see the politics, it's getting worse and worse. We see things around the world, it's getting worse and worse, except we say, but Jesus will come. Amen? And that is our glorious hope. That is what hope means. And that's what Paul is saying. Even though we see the suffering here, we still have this glorious hope that we hold on to. And there are times in our life when we go through uh, that we don't know how to pray or what to pray, and yet the Holy Spirit groans within us. The Holy Spirit prays for us, on behalf of us. Amen? And that is amazing because we all come to a point, we all come to a valley where you're, you're, you just stand in depression in God's presence and you have no words. 
And either through speaking in tongues or through just silence, the Holy Spirit is still working on your behalf. So you see the Trinity. You see the Holy Spirit speaking in, in you. You see the Son of God, Jesus, speaking or interceding for you. And you see the God Almighty or God the Father so working in all of mankind, working in all your situations for you. So this is one of those passages where you have Father God, the Son God, and the Spirit God, all of them coming together to work for you. When you think that everything is against you, you need to tell yourself, if God is for us, who is against us? Amen? And Paul goes on to say whether it's persecution, whether it's suffering, whether it's hatred, whatever calamity has come against us, nothing is going to separate us from the love of Christ. And he repeats that a few times in chapter 8. If you skim through with me, chapter 8, verse 31 through 39 he talks about this uh, unity with Christ. He talks about how nothing is going to separate us. Okay, so all of this was just recap. I want to I get into the passage right now, which is chapter 9. And he immediately says in verse 2, um, or verse 3, For I wish I could myself, uh, I wish, sorry. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Because Paul here, right before he said this, in chapter 8, he talked about unity in Christ. He said that nothing is going to separate me from Christ. And yet when he starts off in chapter 9, he says, I wish I was separated from Christ. So he is, when, uh, again, uh, when the Old Testament, or uh, in the church, early Christian church, Nobody was reading the word of God like, like how we are, right? So there was somebody who was standing here. In this case, Phoebe came with a letter, and Phoebe stood in front of the church, and she was reading the letter. So people are listening to what is being read, and so they hear the contrast. So they hear that Paul just said about unity in Christ, and then he immediately says that he wishes he was separated from Christ. So why is it that Paul does this? Because it's intentional. And like I said before, nothing in the word of God is accidental. And especially when it comes to Paul, who is highly educated, very argumentative, very debating kind. He's very intelligent. The words he chooses, the, the way he writes, it all makes sense. There's a reason why he's writing it in the way he's writing. And the reason goes back to addressing the church that was divided and there was anti-Semitism. So we talked about this. The Israel, the Israel or the Jewish Christians said, we are better than you right? So the Jewish Christian says, I am so-and-so. I'm the child of Abraham. I'm a Benjamite. I've done this. I keep the law and all of these credentials. The Gentile says, the Gentile Christians say, all of that is true, but you rejected Jesus. Because you rejected Jesus, God has forsaken you. You lost your birthright. You're no longer valuable. We are in a new covenant where God's grace is on Gentiles now. So they said the Old Testament does not matter. The traditions does not matter because we have a new thing in Jesus. So you have division in the church. So what do you do? So, does, uh, so what, what do we do? Because we are all Gentiles now, right? 
So now I don't think most of the people here, we don't have Jewish in, uh, bloodline. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're all Gentiles saved by Christ. So if you're all Gentiles, does that mean that we have to abide by the Old Testament? Because none of us are Jewish. Why do we have to go through the entire Old Testament again when we are not Jewish? Because we're Gentiles, we're saved by grace and not by works, right? And so, but the Jewish people, so did God reject the Jewish people altogether? Did God who saved the Jewish people from the time of Abraham through all the exiles, God has come through, God has come through, God has come through. And even now we see the hand of God working in the nation of Israel. And what do we say to that? How does the church respond to that? And that is what Paul is trying to address in chapters 9 through 11. So it's a little bit of a complex chapter. I don't want to skim through this because we are all adults. We need to be able to understand and digest what is being said here. And so Paul says, if you can go with me to chapter 9, verse 6 onwards... So Paul says that, um, if you just skim with me, okay, because I'm not, I don't have the time to read all of it. He says that we're all children of Abraham, right? But the Abraham's children, not all of them are called. Okay, so you had Isaac and you had Ishmael, but whom did God choose? Isaac. Okay, Isaac had two children. He had Jacob and he had Esau. Whom did God choose? Jacob. And so you go down the line, you see that with Jacob's children too, he had 12 children and he had Joseph. You would think that God would choose Joseph, but he chose Judah. And so as you go through the lineage of Jesus, there are, there are people in the lineage whom God chose for the promise. So, and the other people God rejected. Okay, and so there is a line. And in the same way, when it comes to the time of Jesus, God said, okay, now it's time for you to choose Jesus. So it separates into the followers of Jesus and the non-followers of Jesus. So the Israelites who rejected Jesus have now been cut off. The Israelites or the Jewish people who accepted Jesus are continuing with the promise. Does that make sense? And so this is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people of Israel. The promise is still continuing through Israel. Except when you go to chapter 11, I'm going to skip chapter 10 for a brief moment. If you go to chapter 11, you see Paul is using uh, an olive tree as a reference. And he says that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, are like this olive tree. Okay? And there are uh, and God prunes the olive tree and he cuts off the branch that rejected Jesus. And then God grafts in people outside of the Jewish Christian faith into the olive tree, which is all of us. The Gentile Christians who we are a wild olive tree branch or a wild branch and God takes the wild branch and he grafts it into the olive tree. Amen? And the reason Paul says is, okay, but Paul says all of this is true, but I don't want you Gentiles to be boastful because that was what was happening. The Gentile Christians were being very boastful and saying, you're no more. You have no value. You as Jewish people, you have no value. And they were kind of putting them down. They were being anti-Semitic and things like that. And Paul says, listen, 
if God can reject his chosen people because of their rejection of his son, God can do that to you as well. As you Gentiles, you have been accepted into the family of God now. You're one with Christ right now, but this salvation is not eternal security. That's what they're saying. Because when the Jewish people thought of them as the promise, when the Jewish people thought of them as they were saved and set apart, they didn't think of them as an individual. We think of it as individual. When we say, I'm saved, you say, I am saved. You don't say the entire church is saved. But that's what the Jewish people said. The Jewish people said all of the Jewish people. The entire Israel was saved as a community. Okay? So that is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, yeah, we are all saved, but then you are responsible for your own life. This salvation is not eternal security. And Paul, I skipped over chapter 10 and uh, second part of chapter 9 because it talks about the elect and predestination. Because that is one of the things that separates and divides the evangelical church right now, right? You have the Baptist here in Texas, which is one of the strongest uh, denominations. And you have the assembly squad, you have the church of God. So you have all these denominations. But one of the major things that separates at least us assemblies of God from the Baptist or the brethren is because we don't believe that God predestined us. Okay, so what does that mean? Before you were born in your mother's womb, before you were conceived in your mother's womb, God created us. We all, we all understand that. But did God tell, okay, I'm choosing this person to go to hell even before God, you, you had a chance to live? Before you even had a chance to prove yourself or live this life, did God say, I'm going to select this group of people to go to hell and this group of people to go to heaven? Is that true? Because I don't think that's true. Because God gave each of us free will. Okay? God Almighty gave Adam and Eve free will. He's given each of us free will. And we have a right to do what we can with our own lives. Okay, because if we go, in, uh, God never created hell for the sake of mankind. Hell was not created for human beings. Okay, and so uh, this is the reason why predestination is, a, is not a good idea. But what does Paul mean when he says predestination here? There's a difference between predestination and foreknowledge. Okay, because we all know that God knows everything. Devam and then he knows what's going to happen in your life. He knows what's going to happen in your children's life. He knows it, okay, because he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. But that doesn't mean that God is controlling your life, yes? God is not controlling your life saying, I want this person to do exactly this thing, okay? He's not destining you. You control what is happening in your life, when you pray to God, God, do this in my favor, God acts upon it, but ultimately your salvation is your responsibility. Amen? But what we do have as a comfort for all of us is Jesus says, I'm going to send a helper for you. Because this is not easy. For us to live a life of holiness when we are responsible for our own salvation in this super complicated world, we need help. And God says, I am sending you a helper and that helper is the Holy Spirit. So we are not alone, my friends. We have two helpers, actually. One, we have the Holy Spirit. And the second, we have the church. 
This body of believers, this is the reason why it's important for us to be a part of the body of believers. Because I know there are people who say, I believe in Jesus. I can worship God wherever I am. I can stay at home and worship God too. God's presence is going to... All of that's true. But the Bible also emphasizes on the importance of community. We need accountability. We need help. We need encouragement. We need discipline. All of that is necessary. And this is our second source of help that God is giving us. So let us not put down the importance of coming together. And Paul says that in one of his future epistles. He says, let us come together and worship in unity and community. Okay? And so I want to give you a quick recap of what we just talked about. So even though, even though we have the nation of Israel which rejected Christ, God is still saying, I'm gonna, I haven't given up hope for Israel. Okay, because if you go further down in chapter 11, God says, yes, the people of Israelites have uh, rejected me. But God says, I have not rejected them. You know what a covenant means? A covenant means it's a two-party agreement that even if one person breaks the agreement, the other person's still going to be faithful, as opposed to a contract. A contract, if one person breaks the contract, the contract becomes void or it becomes useless but a covenant two parties one of them breaks it the other person is still in the covenant okay and that's what God's covenant is God made a promise to Abraham God chose the people of Israel why did God choose Israel God chose Israel which was a country which was a nation that did was not even a nation at the time when he called it he called Israel, which was the worst of the worst, had no credibility, and God chose this weak nation. Why? To show his glory. Amen? God could have chosen any other nation, but he chose Israel because God is sovereign, which means God has a right because he is God to choose whoever he wants, and God chose us, okay? God predestined us in the sense that God wanted all of humanity God predestined all of humanity to be saved. God predestined all of humanity to come under the, the lordship of Jesus. But we have the, the ability to accept or reject Jesus. The same thing that happened with Israel, where they accepted or rejected Jesus and therefore they were cut off or grafted in, in the same way, when we accept Jesus or when we reject Jesus, we are grafted in or we are cut off. So our salvation is not eternal, okay? Our salvation is not secure, I should say. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say eternal. Our salvation is not secure. Our behavior, we are responsible for. So in our behavior, if we do vile things, if we sin deliberately in the presence of God saying, God, I'm going to sin because... Your salvation is eternal. I'm not going to lose my salvation. That is wrong, my friends. I hope you don't do that. Because Paul says, just because there's grace, do you keep on sinning? Just because you, you were a bigger sinner and more grace was extended to you, do you keep on sinning? No. We try to strive for perfection. We strive to rely more on God so we can look more like God. When you look at yourself in the mirror, if you see yourself... There's a problem with that. When you look at somebody else and you see their personality coming out and not Jesus' personality coming out, there's a problem in that. There's more work for us to do. Whether you are a brand new Christian 
or whether you are a Christian, third generation Christian or something like that, there, there is always more improvement. There's always room for us to grow closer to Jesus. Amen? Because Paul, that's what Paul is addressing because most of us here are like second generation Christian, right? Second generation, third generation Christians. And Paul is saying here, Israelites or Jewish people, yes, you are ethnically Jewish. Ethnically, you have a promise, but you have responsibility for yourself. In the same way, just because you grew up in a Christian church and you heard the gospel your entire life and you think you're a Christian doesn't mean that you are always like set for this. You choose every day. It's a daily choice. Not because your dad made this choice or your mom made this choice or your Apichan made this choice. You make that choice. Not because you made that choice 20 years ago. You make that choice today. Because our salvation is progressive. It's not once saved, always saved. But just because you accepted the Lord when you were 7 years old or 14 years old, I accepted the Lord when I was 14 or 15 years old. But that doesn't mean, yes, the Spirit of God is there with me, but I need to examine my life on a daily basis. Lord, where am I in this relationship? Am I, far, am I drifting away from God or am I getting closer to God? Let us not become easygoing. Let us not become compatible or um, complacent. Let us not become, make this, take this for granted. Okay, let us not take our relationship with Christ for granted. Let us look at Jesus. Let us look at his love. Let us look at his grace that he's extended to us in a new way every day. And that is when you get excited about the love of God. And Paul talks about all of this, especially chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. He gets so excited that he ends chapter 11 with a doxology. And I'm going to end with that. Let's read this doxology together. Chapter 11, verse 33 to 36. So we're going to read it together. I'm going to read it in English. If you have it in a different language, go ahead and read it together in that, uh, that language. Ready? Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the lord or who has been his counselor who has ever given to god that god should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen may god bless you with these words Jesus, I thank you for this beautiful morning. I thank you for this church who is here to worship you, Lord God. I pray that you will prepare our hearts, prepare our minds to worship you in truth and in unity, Lord Jesus. I pray, Spirit of God, that you'll work in our lives, in each of our lives. Every word that we listen from the speakers today, I pray that you will take it, that you will break it in 50 different ways so we'll understand it in a way that is relevant to us today, Lord God. I thank you because you're wonderful, that your word is living, that your spirit is active. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.